0: We spend too much time trying to carry what isn't ours to carry. And I think it's more of a response of our own anxiety because we want to relieve people of pressure. And I think sometimes we do actually shortchange what God has for those people when we're carrying something instead of just walking alongside them.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. My name is David Bloom, and I'm excited about today's episode just before we get into it uh, we want to thank you for listening along with us we've been so encouraged by the support that we've received and the reviews that you guys have written and the the ways that you've shared and talked about the podcast whether you have shared it with a friend personally or on your social media page or you have shared the link we're so encouraged by that and it really encourages us to make more episodes and continue to bring you the content um, that we've been doing so continue to listen share Um, please rate and review if you haven't done it please subscribe If you're interested in getting these podcasts every time we send them out each week, uh, we would love to have you follow along as our subscribers. So I'm with my co-host, Alan Briggs. Alan, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. We are recording today, and it finally feels like summer, from my writing shed. Kind of a man cave of sorts Mm -hmm. on the side of my house, and we're actually accompanied by my dog, Cleo, today. So just the three of us taking on the podcast. So David, let me just start us off really heavy. Here's a question for you. Do you regularly feel anxiety? Yes, because I'm
1: human, and that's often part of the human condition. You know, we feel anxious. There are real responsibilities in life, and we can feel scattered and worried and, um, you know not knowing the future and so yeah i i struggle with anxiety i wouldn't say it's a huge part of my personality but but absolutely so what about you alan what's what's kind of your relationship with this topic of anxiety
2: yeah it's a really complicated question um i think there's kind of three definitions at least that we regularly throw around of of anxiety um number one clinical i mean diagnosable medical issue and I think mostly that's not what we're talking about when we say I'm feeling anxious. And obviously, there are meds for that. I'm a, I'm a big fan of those. This can be super helpful. And then the next one is like regular anxiety, just when we're regularly anxious and we carry that with us for a long period of time. And then I think the easiest to understand is just the the feeling of, I'm feeling anxious. This decision is making me feel anxious right now. Or, man, I'll feel better once I make this. And you kind of feel better later. So. I think, um, yeah, I think we as humans carry that. And you're talking about the human condition. What about the leader condition? I mean, there's just so much that affects us and impacts us that other people around us are carrying. I think about uh, my kids and I think about kind of the fears that are multiplied there, the people that I lead over. I think about finances and provision. And so, um, absolutely. I mean, I don't like to admit to that. I'm kind of more of a happy-go-lucky guy, but um, but truthfully, kind of, you know, certainly some of that regular anxiety uh, on a regular basis, seasons where we th- we talk about stress, we talk about the need for rest. Uh, I realize sometimes that I've been running on a level of stress and sometimes anxiety, and certainly over decisions that that we make.
1: Yeah, when we talk about it from a leadership standpoint, um, there's this kind of this biblical definition of anxiety that's really helped me if you trace back the the Greek of of what Jesus um, the word that Jesus uses for anxiety really it means like to be cut apart or to be scattered or to be pulled apart in different directions and that's how leadership feels right you have all these different responsibilities and sometimes competing priorities and you know you don't know which decision is the right time to make or, or what should draw your attention or how you should spend your time I mean there's all sorts of things pulling at you and you feel like you you, you know, need to compartmentalize something to just make it work, to not feel that anxiety. And there's tensions in leadership. And um, that's part of navigating that that scattered feeling of anxiety
2: in leadership. It's such a helpful definition because we have a divided heart often, whether it's decisions, whether it's knowing that we need to do something hard, uh, conflict. We feel that division within ourselves. So I think that's a really helpful definition topic and we're committed to talking about the hard things here. So I think it's, I think it's easy to throw around the buzzword of stress. Like that's just kind of become the new busy. Like stressed is the new busy of yeah, busy. And of course I'm stressed. Uh, But I think anxious is more helpful because it doesn't roll off the tongue as easy. And I think this is a, a super crucial conversation that we're having today. And so if you're listening along, no matter what level of anxiety that you're wrestling with, This is a good one. I talked to Steve Cuss, and Steve is a pastor. But below that, Steve has some incredible experiences. I mean, from the heart of the ER, he's talking about death. He entered his ministry literally processing death and dying as a very young man. And I absolutely loved his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. So that's a conversation today. Um, I do want to spin it just a little bit differently. Today, I encourage you to have a conversation after this podcast with somebody. Don't just listen to this. Have a conversation with your spouse or a close friend and ask them. Because I think many times we think, no, no, I'm going to be okay. I'm just stressed right now. I just need a vacation or some fun. And truthfully, we need to be talking about anxiety on our teams. And so we hope to kind of get in the way today with this conversation. Um, so that you guys can have those conversations on the other end of it. So without any further ado, we jump into this much needed conversation on Steve's crucial book, Managing Leadership Anxiety. Well, guys, I'm really excited about our guest uh, today. He's a pastor and an author, but Beyond that, he probably has the coolest accent of anyone we've had on the podcast uh, thus far. Steve Cuss uh, is here today, and we are going to talk about anxiety in leaders today. I know you're not feeling that. Anyone listening isn't feeling any sense of anxiety or overwhelm, of course. You're asking for a friend, but we're excited to ask questions in this. Steve, thanks for coming on the podcast today, man.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're going to have good times with anxiety. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, awesome. Let's talk about anxiety. So, obviously, you're <laughs> you're not from Texas. Uh, where are you from? Give us sort of your journey into here, uh, and and then your journey into needing to write a book on leadership anxiety.
0: Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. So, yeah, I'm not from Texas. I'm a bit further. I'm a true southerner. So, I was born and raised in Perth, Western Australia. And um, the short story is I grew up completely unchurched. None of my immediate family or extended family have ever really had anything to do with church. And when my older sister was in high school, uh, she became friends with a girl who was just this natural evangelist. So Elaine is this lady's name. She took my sister to church. My sister came to Christ and then my sister led her little brother. That's me. And so my sister and I are the only believers in our family. Um, so, uh, when I got older, trying to choose a vocation, I really felt a strong calling to ministry and for a whole bunch of reasons chose to come to the United States. I, I was basically theologically illiterate, uh, when I came to college to become a minister. In fact, I remember, um, they gave us a Bible entrance exam. They, they wanted to figure out, you know, how much Bible do you know coming in? And then how much Bible do you know when you graduate? And I got a 22% coming in. Um, I couldn't put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the correct order, for example. That's just a total, I was all zeal and no knowledge. So that's why I moved to America. It was for college. And then um, a little down the road, I did seminary. And between college and seminary, I had this one-year opportunity to become a trauma chaplain. And I was 24 years of age. And it was in my trauma chaplaincy and my hospice chaplaincy that this whole book and this whole uh, thing that I teach on leadership anxiety really came about. So basically, I am in some ways a fairly, I would say, boring, predictable, stereotypical lead pastor. I'm white, tall, I'm uh, type A, I'm entrepreneurial, I like to get it done. And so I took all it and I, I've been affirmed, you know, through my teenage years as a leader. So I, I, I had that as a Self-proclaimed identity, and I took all of that into hospital chaplaincy, and in many ways, really fell on my face because you you end up in a room with people in deep pain and people at, in the worst moments of their life, and you end up in those situations multiple times a day as a chaplain. In fact, my very first day on the job was a twenty-eight hour overnight shift, uh, and the day before I'd been on my honeymoon, so I was totally green going in. And all of these type A, get it done, fix it type entrepreneurial tendencies, all kept getting in the way of being an effective chaplain. And what I had to learn is that I've got all this stuff boiling under the surface in my life that's getting in the way of my ability to be present to people in pain. And so if I can start to notice what's going on under the surface, I can actually uh, go from it having me in control to me actually being able to manage it. And so really my year of chaplaincy, I mean, I probably attended to I, 250 deaths, maybe like just an, it was an onslaught of death and trauma. And that year really taught me a lot about myself and um, all the things that a leader does to make up for the fact that they actually don't know what to do. And I, I really got firsthand experience of what it's like when I'm in an environment where I'm feeling all this internal and external pressure to do something, but actually uh, do it, not doing something is the right next move. So I did the chaplaincy thing. It was intense. And then I left and went into ministry, church leadership, and I've had several roles. And I was really surprised to discover that all of those same lessons in chaplaincy actually uh, are required in church leadership too, that, that I've got all these things bubbling under the surface that basically block me from being able to be present to people and to God and so if I can notice those, and if I can also pay attention to how it's happening in other people through a thing called family systems theory, then I can really lead in a whole other gear. So that, that's kind of my early story of how I came to Christ and how I came to the States and how I ended up, of all things, in, um, in a trauma hospital.
2: I got so many questions there. <laughs> but the first one is, why in our culture do we feel like we need to rescue people from pain, we do not do pain and lament well in Western culture. Why do you think that is?
0: I, I think our, I think we are afraid of death as a culture. I think uh, in, in modern civilization, with our technology, we actually think we can defeat death. I, I think we really are fooled. Uh, you know, a lot of the conversations I would have with people, and this is twenty four years ago now. technology's even way further ahead now, but so much end of life discussion. When do you pull the plug? How much? medical intervention is crossing an ethical line and I think it's I think it's because we have lost a vision of heaven. I think through the history of God's people when when we are like oppressed or persecuted, we really do long for heaven so like those those great rich spiritual songs, they're all written about you know there's going to come a day. but I think when life's pretty good, we're just trying to postpone it. So I, I think we get really anxious around death and pain. I just don't think we know how to be spiritually formed in pain.
2: And um, the so I'm, I'm an Enneagram 7, and if you know the 7, it's sort of that fear of being trapped uh, in pain, and not necessarily like a physical pain of breaking your arm, but like being trapped in other people's pain. And I know yeah. that as a pastor now for coming up on 13 years, you can't get away from it. I mean, I'll walk into somebody at the grocery store, and I know – that while they look like a happily married couple, they're on the edge of divorce. Like you can't get away from it. You can't escape it. And uh, and every single week, God has to pound that in to my head. The idea of, no, I got to fix something. I got to do something. So you mentioned that that informed ministry. What are some of the specific ways that your time in trauma has helped to inform your pastoral ministry?
0: Yeah, you know... um, so, my very first encounter, this whole model of chaplaincy I was trained in is known as clinical pastoral education, and it's much better known in the in the mainline churches, like the the Methodist and the Catholic guys. but they they refuse to tell you what to do. they They kick you into the situation, and then every morning for an hour and a half, you debrief, and you really start to learn how to pay attention to what it's like to be a human. So, my very first encounter, uh, was a family who had lost the, the matriarch of the family. she had died unexpectedly in surgery and I'm 24, totally green and I walk into the intensive care and there's about 15 family members just screaming. So I had one family member was just rhythmically hitting her head against the wall. One lady was vomiting into a rubbish bin. It, it was It was unbelievable. And uh, that's when I first started to notice that when a leader doesn't know what to do, we get anxious and our effort to do something has more to do with maintain, with managing our own anxiety than actually serving the person. So I, I didn't learn this for a while, but looking back on that encounter, that was the moment that really showed me as a leader, my entrepreneurial skills are useless, my wits are useless, my charm is useless. I actually have no tools in this moment. And and that feeling of not knowing what to do, it's suddenly you can't, you get this internal pressure to do something. And I think that's why some church leaders simply can't be with people in pain because we're too uncomfortable ourselves. So I, what I learned is if I can name all the pressure I'm feeling inside. And, you know, what I've written about in this book is I've actually diagnosed about 24 sources of internal anxiety that every leader faces. Uh, If I can name that, I can actually be more present to people and also to God. So I I believe anxiety is actually a spiritual force that competes uh, for the same space that God resides in. So when you're anxious, it's really difficult to be aware that God is with you because you're so busy attending to your own anxiety and a lot of leaders i know don't even know they're anxious they actually think they're being productive for example yeah
2: absolutely talk about that talk about that as as a drug and how instead of you know maybe pausing to to realize that that we push into productivity where do you see that in leadership the, the sort of productivity as a drug to cover our anxiety
0: well i think most of us who are in church leadership are afraid Of non-progress in our church, we we have lost our patience. So that you know, if you look at your average plant that bears vegetables or bears any kind of fruit, they're only bearing fruit in one season. So they require three seasons that don't bear fruit for the one that does. But I think we have gotten so efficient that we expect to bear fruit every season, and I think productivity is linked to that pressure so you know we we're mistrustful when we don't grow you know whereas in the old just a generation or two ago it was actually okay to go to a church and just faithfully serve it for 25 years now I think we have all this added pressure of faithfully serving the church and growing it and being noticed by some conference that wants to now bring us to come and tell them how we did it so that we can stand on a giant stage while people stare at us and say it wasn't me, it was God, you know, like to we yep. we want to figure out how to look humble in front of other people. Yep. So I just think we carry all these pressures now that I don't think our predecessors carried as much.
2: Wow, so many good nuggets there. Um, on this podcast, we talk about ridiculously practical things. We host the conversation, call the party. Uh, and so honestly, I, I feel like I'm the first one that gets sort of the best nuggets and then everybody else gets to listen along to this. David and I just love, um, hearing this stuff. And so talk about some personal things, um, below that. Obviously it's, um, you talk about many, many different factors for our anxiety. Keller has called it the anxious age, which I think, um, unfortunately brands our age. You think about teen suicide. I mean, you can talk about sort of out there, um, what are three or four of those pressures for you, Steve, that as you write this book, you realize, man, that's a significant one for me, and that probably has an inordinate effect on me. Can can you share some of those personal anxieties for us?
0: Yep, for sure. Yeah. So I think for people listening, if they want to start diving into this, I'll, I'll share some of my specifics. But the question to ask is, as a leader, in any given moment, can you actually name what you believe you need that you don't actually need. That would be a, a just a real concrete question I'd encourage people to start thinking through is in any given moment, if, if I'm noticing I'm anxious, it's often because I believe I need something that I don't really need. Now that's a broad statement so I do have to give like a context that there are things we actually do need. But in my case, for example, I have a strong need to be liked. I also have a strong need to be understood. So if somebody misunderstands me, my next natural response is to use more words, as if more insight from me will somehow convince them. And It particularly comes about if somebody not only misunderstands me, but they misattribute motives to me. They ascribe bad motives to something that I don't actually have bad motives in. I I feel this natural pressure to convince them that I'm a good guy. But that's actually not something I actually need. Like I can actually go through life as a leader and not be liked and not be understood, and actually have aspersions cast on me and be okay. But that takes work for me. I don't get there naturally.
2: Are there a few common culprits that you see today? I mean, of those many that you you know kind of discuss and flesh out in the book, do you think there are a few that are very common to us due to just sort of the pressures of this age?
0: Yeah, I think for church leaders, we have a few things in common. I think we all have a natural level of insecurity where we, we're always pulled to the stage, and I think that's a real danger. Um, I think one of the common sources of anxiety for a, particularly a church leader is we can tend to conflate our identity as God's beloved child with our work as God's faithful employee. And I think it's easy for us to either mix those up or, or kind of merge them together. So the gifts that God, you know, Jesus says God gives good gifts to his children, but my tendency is to receive those gifts, not as God's beloved child, but to figure out how to then parlay them to help the church. So instead of becoming a recipient of God's gifts, I only become a conduit, you know, stuff like that. I think that wears a leader down and makes us anxious. And then uh, in the book, I actually get into very specific sources of anxiety that make anybody anxious. So it's not just about church leadership. These are the same sources that make a parent anxious, for example. So one classic source would be a double bind, where uh, either you put yourself in a double bind or somebody puts you in a double bind and you don't know it's a double bind, you just know you're anxious. So I have about, I think I have 24 sources of anxiety that generate anxiety for any person. And by, by knowing and naming what it is, you actually gain power over it. So I could dive into any of those, like the double bind, I could give an example of what that is, for, if that would help.
2: Sure. Yeah. And maybe, maybe more specifically, um, let's talk about pastors. Um, what do you think are some double binds that we often get ourselves in?
0: Yeah. So uh, so here's what a double bind is. If, if Jimmy is coming down for Christmas morning and there's two gifts from his parents and they're two shirts, they're the same company, they're the same type of shirt. Let's say they're an Eddie Bauer flannel and one is red and one's blue. And then later when he comes down for Christmas dinner, his dad says, and he's wearing the red shirt. His dad says, well, what was wrong with the blue shirt? That's, a, that's what a double bind is, is no matter what you choose, you lose. So I think pastors put ourselves in double binds. Like one of my double binds is I love to preach. I love to preach off the cuff. I tend to have a spontaneous, even though I have a manuscript, I can tend to be spontaneous. I'm also, I, I'm an Enneagram three, so I tend to work the room and I have at the same time a desire to be liked and understood that's a constant double bind you can't have both when you preach the way i preach i'm i'm going to ruffle feathers and i'm going to be i'm going to say things i don't always mean so that's an example of a double bind uh, oftentimes people can put us in a double bind when they come for help but they don't actually know what they want and every effort you make to help them they 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 bat it away they talk about like they they say that's not going to work what else do you have and you find yourself working harder to help the person than they are themselves, that's kind of a more sophisticated form of a double bind.
2: Hmm. I, I think it's, I was just thinking back to Jesus's ministry and how many times he uh, did some things that were surprising to us and we don't get them. And I wonder how many of them was avoiding the double bind, right? The lose-lose situation, maybe putting the onus back on that person. I think about the rich young ruler walking away in that moment and how many times we try to rescue. And so how's that idea of sort of the anxiety we we put ourselves into those constant double binds, uh, how might that be connected to our desire to rescue people? We're talking about rescuing people from pain earlier. Are those two connected in your mind, Steve?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of what I teach comes out of a, a theory called Bowen theory or family systems theory, And there's a there's a technique, or it's really a spiritual practice called differentiation, and I I have a whole chapter on it. But it's interesting that even secular people who use family systems theory, they say that Jesus is the most differentiated person to ever live. Um, So let's take Jesus in Luke chapter 24, on the road to Emmaus. You've got Cleopas and his companion. Let's call let's say it's Mrs. Cleopas, just for the sake of discussion. We don't know who is with him. And they're walking along and they're highly anxious. And Jesus comes and walks alongside with them. And he just strikes up a conversation. You know, I'm sure a lot of people know this story. And he basically says to them, and I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, what are you guys so anxious about? And they look at him like he's the idiot. And they say, are are you the only person alive that doesn't know what happened today? And they go obviously, to tell Jesus about how their Messiah has been crucified and all their hopes are dashed. Now, what's fascinating about this is, of course, he is the very reason they're anxious. He's also the only person in the world that can relieve their anxiety. All he has to do is reveal himself to them, right? All he has to do is say, hey, guys, it's me. But what's fascinating and why people say he's differentiated is his ability to walk alongside people who are anxious without getting infected by their anxiety. And somehow by doing that, they learned something that they wouldn't have learned if he had resolved the tension for them. And I do think there's a huge lesson in this for leaders. Uh, My experience is most church leaders and most people on the front lines of the caring industry, whether you're a nurse or something like that, we we tend to get really confused between walking alongside somebody and their anxiety and carrying their burden for them. And I, I think we spend too much time trying to carry what isn't ours to carry. And I think it's more of a response of our own anxiety because we want to relieve people of pressure. And I think sometimes we do actually shortchange what God has for those people when we're carrying something instead of just walking alongside them. Now that's easier said than done, but that's what comes to mind when you said that.
2: Sure, Of course, uh, So good, Steve. I'm excited to catch up you know over coffee and you'll know, continue this conversation. Um, haven't read the book yet. Uh, have it ordered. So really excited um, to be able to, to dig in. I know that's weird to say, excited to dig in on anxiety, but I think you um, <laughs> even bring some of the, the clinical and explanations of what we know to be true. But you talked earlier about naming things. There's a power Mm. in naming things. um, And even just the idea, okay, you think there's a monster under the bed, let's name it, and it loses some power. We describe it, it loses some power. So um, even as a coach, I feel that. Even when I have my coach hat on, I think, man, I need to, in these 10 sessions, sort of blow their mind and make it worth this Mm. fact. And I can find myself shifting from a coach of pulling out or extracting or seeing what God is doing, and walking alongside of them into a trainer of, okay, well, here's the content to take you, you know, from from place A to place Z, right, really quickly, so that you can know that it was worth this time, this investment, this money, what whatever it is. Um, but it's about me in that moment. And how many times we say we're quote unquote doing ministry when? Really, it's about us. We're trying to relieve the pressure. So I'm almost picturing a bumper sticker: "Keep it awkward," you know, like sort of let God <laughs> be that pressure valve. You know, like keep it awkward in that moment because uh, we hate that uh, with within our culture.
0: I think you've given a perfect example of that. That's exactly right. Like when you're feeling the pressure to. I I would if I'm putting words in your mouth. I think what I heard you saying is, give them value for their money or value for whatever it is. Hundred percent. Yep. Yeah, and and in that moment, you're serving your anxiety instead of serving what they need, and and knowing it and naming it is actually what breaks its power over you. That's that's the beauty of it. And and I I get quite sophisticated in the book on how you actually give God your anxiety and how the gospel of grace really does invade that space where anxiety was residing before. And that was my experience when I first started chaplaincy, the, the palpable presence of God once I noticed all my own control issues and stuff was really, really powerful.
2: Well, I'm excited to read it and, and dig in. We talk a lot about uh, leader overwhelm and sort of that gnawing sense of anxiety, maybe on the surface, it's easier to name. Um, and then going maybe a a layer deeper of anxiousness, going maybe a layer deeper of fears, maybe a layer deeper of lies. I mean, uh, all the way, you know, down to, to tracing it back, uh, to what we don't believe about God in that moment. Um, let's talk about technology for a moment. I mean, I'm sure you've had plenty of conversations around anxiety and technology right now. How do you see technology, maybe not creating the anxiety, um, but heightening our anxiety today?
0: Yeah, I, I do think um, we had this problem that we now have so much access to so much information and so much bad news that our generation feels so much pressure to fix everything that's wrong with the world right away. Um, Alan, I get really uncomfortable every time I talk about this because I'm so mindful that I'm a I'm a white guy, like I'm I'm almost stereotypically in the center of power. And I always feel like, because I think what's going on in our culture is we've lost our patience for marginalized people to be marginalized. And I think that's a really good thing. So I, I'm, I always get a bit uncomfortable talking because I recognize that I benefit from the systems and structures of our culture. Yep. At the same time, there's something that it feels like everything that's wrong with the world, we, we suddenly have to fix right away. And I think that's putting incredible pressure. On people, you know, I'm I'm very involved in social justice work, and a lot of people I love are, and it does feel like everyone's under. It feels like everyone's sprinting, Mm. and not just sprinting, but we're carrying twenty five causes, you know, and it feels wrong to say I've got three causes. It feels like you're robbing people if you only focus on two or three. So I think that's a tremendous. Once
2: once we've chosen the cause. We maybe feel that pressure that every time there's sort of an outbreak within that cause, there's something in the news that we can no longer remain silent. On yeah, it, right. That, yeah. that silence is a statement. Um, we had AJ Swoboda. Um, we we're talking on the podcast. Um, he's pastored in Portland for the last ten years, and he was talking about what he loves is the justice. Um, that sort of is on the typical Portlander, uh, and what he despises is uh, that he doesn't know what he's supposed to be angry about today or this yeah. week. And sort of that pressure that mounts that I've got to be the mouthpiece, um, for this. That's a great point. All that access to information, all that hunger for justice. And sort of w- once we're in, we've kind of got to be the mouthpiece or whatever, the thumbs of it, the tweets of it. I mean, whatever that sort of manifests. And so that's a great point, Steve.
0: Well, we we also live in a culture, and this, this is rampant in our churches, where we really do believe that one more comment from me on social media is going to do something. And I, I know I have people in my church get quite upset that I don't post more publicly about things, but I'm just not convinced. So I tend to be outspoken one-on-one, and I tend to be outspoken from my pulpit, but I'm not very outspoken on social media. And... I just am not convinced that what the world needs is one more voice. But but we do live in a culture that is judging me as a leader by what I'm speaking up on and what I'm not. I think that's an extra pressure that we face now nowadays. That's good. Uh, What are what would you say are some
2: practical ways where um, you know? Obviously, we have smartphones. We have access to to things. I think we should inhabit the space of social media. What are some ways we can peel that back to lose a little bit of the power and therefore some of the lingering anxiety in us as leaders?
0: I'm totally old school on this. I I think there's tremendous power in paying attention to your physiology. And um, I, I encourage leaders when I train them in this to become extremely impatient with their anxiety. I think what happens is we all carry a level of anxiety we're not even aware we're carrying. And then what I do with my materials is, is kind of why we call it good times with anxiety. I actually show you the anxiety you're carrying and then you feel terrible. But after that terrible moment, really encouraging people, don't tolerate it anymore. Like you don't have to live with it. I, I have a facilitator that helps me with my material and he tells people in his class, he's like, you, know, you keep telling me this is hard work, but that's because you're not aware of how hard you're working now. You know, before you were aware of this stuff, you were still doing hard work. You're just used to it. Um, I used to do a lot of work in uh, helping people get out of domestic violence. I used to work at a church in Las Vegas, and that was a huge piece of my ministry. And it feels the same. It feels like if if so, we use rather stark language to talk about anxiety when I teach this. Like think of anxiety as a as your abuser. It's not. It's a harsh taskmaster. It never leads you to peace. So I encourage people to start physiologically, figure out where it starts. Is it your spinning mind? Is it your racing heart? Or is it your tightening gut? It, it always starts in different places for each of us. But once you figure out where it starts and you become impatient, you can actually intervene much earlier. And then I think for a leader, uh, you know, what do you think you need that you don't actually need I think is a good next step. And then what is yours to carry and what is God's to carry? And I think for leaders who think that by jumping in and over-functioning, we're always helping, it helps to reframe to see that sometimes in our best efforts, we're actually sabotaging God's work because we're shortcutting somebody's journey by relieving their anxiety. So I think it's always good for us to ask, what is mine to carry? And what is this other person's to carry? And am I actually carrying something that is someone else's? And My experience with leaders is, let's say you have an employee who's under-functioning. You know, we believe the lie that one more meeting and one more coaching session from us, more insight from me is gonna do it. That's, That's why half of my book is all family systems theory is how to pay attention to recurring patterns in people and in groups, and how to pay attention to how your best efforts are actually making it worse those those would just be some next steps, I think
2: That's good. and it it triggers a lot of thoughts. My wife and I do a lot of training around the Enneagram, and you know, the head center, the heart center, and the gut center. Um, but that even takes it a step further of where do you first sense your anxiety within your body? I think we're pretty connected or uh, we're we're so connected with technology that I think we are disconnected with what we actually feel. but yeah, with, with our body. we're literally disembodied. And go, whoa, like, I don't even know what I'm feeling today. When somebody says, you know, how are you doing? And, you know, besides, you know, the classic American treatment of, you know, great, fine, whatever our answer is, huh, I I don't even know. So talk about um, self-awareness a little bit. What are some ways to kind of cultivate a self-awareness if we don't even know where we're feeling anxious? Where do we start with that, Steve?
0: Yeah. That's a great question. I think you do start physiologically. I think, I think almost every one of our listeners could actually identify right now, does my anxiety start in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? And I think that's the beginning of self-awareness because some of our listeners are going to say, oh man, I don't know, it's all of them. But that's because it's gotten to all of them by the time they even know they're anxious. So where you start is definitely to name where it starts. So for me in my life, it's a spinning mind, and it's interesting. I've I've had several people who are uh, quite studied on the enneagram. They mention the correlation, but I'm in enneagram three, which I believe is the heart center. Is that right, Alan?
2: Uh, yes. Yep. The heart yeah. center where it tends to feel shame when we don't perform and those kind of things.
0: Yeah. So that's accurate to me. But my anxiety starts in my mind. I. My solution to anxiety is to think harder about it. So sure, if I think I'm, your
2: way out of the issue,
0: right? You've been able yeah. to do that
2: in the past. You can certainly do it again. And
0: huh. Yeah. Although actually, it's always a lie. I've never yet thought my way to peace. I, I'd <laughs> always just, I just always become more anxious. So I I then set very low thresholds. I, I've become highly impatient. So if I go to bed uh, thinking about something and then I wake up thinking about it for a couple of days in a row, I'll start my interventions. And my interventions are usually uh, something that has nothing to do with church leadership, and everything to do with being a human being and being God's beloved child. So I actually keep a list. And in my book, I write about this too. But I have everyone in, in my class just make a very concrete list of of the people, places and activities that are a gift from God to them, that they can't somehow twist into ministry. So you know, for me, one of the things at the top of my list is time with my wife. We we took our dog for a walk a couple of days ago, and we just held hands and walked with our dog. But that's, my wife is just, she is a gift from God to me. She's actually one of the most tangible conduits of God's grace to me in my life. And I can't twist that experience to benefit my church. So it it's a gift that stays with me instead of me. Whereas, for example, another example is I I I love reading theology. I I get so exhilarated, it's a worship experience for me to read good theology. But because I'm a preacher, my temptation is to always share it with others instead of just receiving it for myself. Um, so I got to go on a sabbatical a couple of years ago and I made a vow to God that since reading theology is such a life-giver for me, I was going to read a lot on sabbatical, but no matter what I learned and no matter how profound it was, I'm never sharing it with the church. It was so hard. Um, So that would be my next step, is to start finding gifts from God to you specifically that you can't twist into serving the church with.
2: That's great, Steve. Uh, I think many times we struggle to be human. We define ourselves... As we're leaders, leaders. Yeah. forgetting like we're actually a human first. Why do you think that's such a big struggle? I mean, leaders across fields, right? Entrepreneurs, yeah. people that are in the healthcare industry, people that own businesses. I mean, friends of mine would all say that to be true. Why do you think in our culture today, that is sort of the issue for leaders, is we just struggle to be human?
0: Yeah, I think it's actually fairly simple. I just think it, we're deeply infected, but I just think we. Live in a culture that believes our identity is anything other than human or son of God or daughter of God. So, you know, when I was a teenager, I was really lost. I was really insecure. I, I was a late bloomer. And I'm 16, 17, 18 years of age when I first started to feel good at something. So I, I remember going through elementary school and high school and watching my friends not only be affirmed for being good at something but i could see it in them that they felt good at something like my friend andrew was really good with girls he knew how to talk to girls and i didn't know how to talk to girls and this other kid was good at sport or whatever i was affirmed after high school as a leader and boy was that like that that affirmation filled a void in my life and so now i see myself as a leader instead of as a human i think that's one of the reasons why
2: that's good, and um, Roar writes about that. Uh, Father Richard Rohr writes about, yeah, you know that many times um, our presence in the stage, uh, and many times as spiritual leaders, um, is because we didn't feel affirmed in in other ways, and just how dangerous that is when we spin that. Um, similar to you're talking about, our anxiety uh, may have nothing to do with actually serving them, but sort of rescuing us from this feeling. I don't know how to handle. Um, Steve, we need to have you back on the podcast. This is such good stuff. Um, and we can, you know, talk for hours. I know you do a lot of teaching around, um, this space. Uh, just, just a couple of things personally. We always ask, um, uh, about your own life. How do you stay healthy in the midst of that? Besides, you know, walks with your wife, uh, and your dog and seeing where your anxiety starts, uh, what are some really practical ways that you yourself stay healthy first as a human and then as a leader?
0: Yep. Yep. So I, I definitely keep a close watch on this identity mix up. And I, I then put interventions in my life. So, for example, you know, my book came out exactly a week ago, and I had a big deadline to have uh, 18 videos for people who want to go through the book uh, as a group. And so I know right now I'm not healthy right now. Like I, I'm a week, I'm running on fumes. We also, our church has just wrapped up a very intense capital campaign. So it just helps me to name and give myself permission. That's number one. I I find in my life and in a lot of leaders, you you said it, Alan, we don't actually know when we're not healthy. And so uh, I've made a a goal this week. I'm gonna play my guitar for two hours this week. Um, I don't know why, but listening to music and playing music for me really connects me to being a human and I take great joy in it. And I I see it as a gift from God. Uh, I've, I've not been exercising well lately with all these deadlines, so I've made a goal this week. So I basically, I'm becoming less productive this week to become more human. And I have a fairly sophisticated, I just call it the life giving list. And it's simply a list of people, places, and activities that give me life and that are a gift from God. So this week I'm doing quite a bit more of those. Uh, when this podcast is over, I've got a lot to do, but I'm actually going to go take a nap. And I'm going to go take a nap and not feel guilty at all, even though I naturally feel like I should be more productive. So those, I don't know if those are clear enough or tangible enough, but those are some things.
2: That's great. No, I, I love it. This the simplicity. It seems like people are looking for ridiculously practical ways. That's what we want to highlight in this podcast. So that's great, Steve. This has been a joy for me. Can't wait to dig into the book. Guys, you need to get your copy of this book, Managing Leadership anxiety. So much talk today uh, of anxiety, but I don't know anybody that's talking from the Christian perspective, from even a clinical perspective, and then knowing your background with trauma. um, We are far too easy to rescue ourselves from something that God is working on with us already in the trenches with us. So uh, Steve, so good already today. Where can people find you and where should people go to grab this book?
0: Yeah, so my website is stevecusswords.com. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well. And I think you can get the book anywhere books are sold. Uh, it's sold out on Amazon right now, but I think they'll get another one, another bunch in a, in a day or two. And then through my website for people who want to go through the book together, which is definitely the best way to do it. You can link through to these videos and these downloads I mentioned. Awesome. Well, man,
2: I can see so many church leaders, even small groups, uh, groups from you know companies and nonprofits even going through this. Uh, together. Steve, thanks for your thoughts and words. Excited to connect over some lunch or a cup of coffee soon, but thanks for coming on today. This has been a gift to us.
0: Great. Thanks a lot, Alan.
1: Everything in this episode is just so timely that we are an anxious culture. Uh, Leadership is, is anxious. Social media and our connectedness and constant Bombardment of information is anxious. And so, whether you're a leader, um, whether you consider yourself a leader or not, anxiety is a part of this world that seems like it's constantly um, spinning uh, too fast for us. So, we're going to end this episode short and sweet with a couple of questions. Um, the first is Where does your anxiety start? With a spinning mind, a knotted gut, or a racing heart? As Steve pointed out, it's so important to be able to identify where it where it begins, so that we can have the self awareness to know when we're actually experiencing the anxiety in our lives. Because often it just it goes unidentified. We're asleep to our anxiety. So is it in a spinning mind, in a knotted gut, or in a racing heart? And then the second thing is, when you identify that anxiety in your life, um, how will you remind yourself? Of your identity? How will you remind yourself of your identity as a human being, as a child of God, as a son or daughter of the living God? How will you remind yourself of your identity? Thank you for listening to another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. Um, We're so thankful for you as our listeners, and um, we're excited to bring you more and more content. So we'll see you in the next episode.